0: What's up y'all? Today we have the perfect episode to get you prepared for the Masters to start tomorrow. Our guest is Dr. Gio Valiante, who's regarded as one of the most successful performance coaches in the world. He currently works with some of the top golfers on the PGA Tour and is the head performance coach for the Buffalo Bills. He was previously the head performance coach for Point 72. In today's episode, we have a master class on peak performance. We kick it off by hearing how Jack Nicholas played a major role in leading him to work with people in high finance and professional sports. We talk about the need to balance mastery versus ego orientation, how to handle fear and anxiety and still perform at your best, focusing on process over outcome, and how to balance confidence with overconfidence. Be sure to stick around to the end to hear the commonalities he sees between greats like Tiger Woods and Steve Cohen. This episode is sponsored by our friends at YCharts. A typical day in the life of a financial advisor calls for back-to-back client meetings, juggling portfolio management, and the consistent desire to improve client relationships. YChart's report and proposal tools could be the missing piece to help you effectively handle these time-consuming tasks. Now more than ever, clients want to hear from their advisors, and with user-friendly templates at your disposal, generating impactful client reports can be easily integrated into your everyday routine, helping you free up time and focus on what matters most Click the link in the show notes to learn what others are saying about YChart's comprehensive suite of reporting and proposal generation tools. Get 20% off your initial YCharts professional subscription when you start your free YCharts trial. Click the link in the show notes or tell them Meb sent you for new customers only. Please enjoy this episode with Gio Valianti. Dr. Gio, welcome to the show. Thank you, Meb. I'm glad to be here. I'm live from my mom's basement in Littleton, Colorado. Where do we find you today? I'm in Winter Park, Florida, just outside of Orlando. I may be in the other Winter Park tonight in Colorado skiing where it has one of the coldest places in the country. The ice box of the West, as they call it. But you you spend a little time here too, right?
1: That's right. We have a cabin outside of Nederland up in Ward, Colorado. And I play a lot of golf at Pinehurst Country Club out there. And get to Colorado as often as I can. It's a great place.
0: Well, cool, man. We're going to talk a lot about all sorts of stuff, golf, investing, psychology. What's the right title for you? Psychologist, performance coach? What's the best way to describe you when you're talking to your friends and family?
1: Yeah, it's been an evolving thing. I was a college professor. I know that. Like, I was definitely a college professor for 13 years and elevated to the level of full professor. And since then, It has meandered, right? Because as an academic, I was doing research in psychology and started working really well with golfers. And I never set out to be a sports psychologist, which is interesting. But the type of psychology I was learning so easily lent itself to sports and specifically golf that when I started toying with the ideas, the cause and effect was pretty dramatic to the tune of 50 wins on the PGA Tour with golfers that I quote unquote work with. But again, it wasn't really work. I was, teaching. I was teaching about psychology to these golfers. They would go apply what I was teaching them and go win a bunch of golf tournaments. So I got labeled as a sports psychologist. And I wrote two books that are under the heading of sports psychology, right? Fearless Golf and Golf Flow are both sports psychology books. And I've published in academic journals of sports psychology, but I'm not really a sports psychologist. And then what happened was in 2015, I think it was, I was out at the US Open in Chambers Bay, Seattle, Washington, and I got an email from Steve Cohen's chief of staff and said, Hey, one of our portfolio managers was at a speech that you gave, attended a speech that you gave about sports psychology. And they invited me to speak to Point 72. And I went and spoke at Steve's house to about 150 people about how I was getting the results I was getting with golf. Because again, it was, and I say this humbly, but almost intellectually, it's interesting how you apply a theory and you get results. But they were asking how I got the results I was getting with golfers in such dramatic fashion, again, to the tune of 50 wins. So I went and gave a talk. And, and
0: you said the secret is finding really good golfers. That <laughs> was the secret.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, the thing is on the PGA Tour, they're all good golfers.
0: Yeah. So you say you play Piners. By the way, what's your handicap? Where do we peg Dr. Geo?
1: Well, I got three kids. So my handicap, they are my handicap. Yeah. <laughs> my yeah. kids are the handicap, but probably, probably about an eight these days, I probably should do about an eight handicap. All right, gotcha. But anyway, I went to point seventy-two, and Steve said, hey, we could use some of this around here. And so then I became a performance coach. So it evolved from college professor to sports psychologist, performance coach. And now I have a stable of really good clients, some on the PGA Tour, some in the NFL, some in the NBA, and many in the world of high
0: finance. Good. We're going to come back to all these topics. We got to rewind a little bit because you did your PhD at Emory. Am I right? That's right. All right. So my wife also did her PhD at Emory, but in a little different topic. She was a philosophy gal. And I've definitely visited a few times down there and rubbed elbows with a bunch of PhDs from Emory. So we can catch up about that later. But I want to hear about the transition because it's interesting to me. Walk us through the timeline on how you started to get some of these clients, whatever the right word is. Sure. So I
1: was an academic, pure academic, level one research school, two degrees, University of Florida, and like you said, PhD at Emory. And William James, who is probably arguably one of America's greatest thinkers, the father of American psychology, but also philosophy, but a first-rate mind. And William James had observed about his own life that he was either going to go to medical school or be an academic. And he said that they're incompatible, that the applied life is really different from the philosophical, reflective life. And if you want to be great, you have to choose. So listening to James, I had chosen the intellectual academic life. I was a pure researcher, pure academic, loved the academic life of reading and writing and research and then teaching college kids at the undergrad and graduate level. But what happened to me was I got pulled out of academia. I wasn't searching, but the research I was doing, it was within an arena called social cognitive theory, which was largely amplified by a guy named Albert Bandura at Stanford University, probably the world's greatest psychologist of the last 50 years is Albert Bandura. He's a giant in the vein of Piaget and Freud and Jung. And he's probably the only giant in the field of psychology out of the last 50 years. Nobody had taken social cognitive theory and applied it to either sports or finance. It was applied in other domains. And that's what happens is there's 50 divisions of the American Psychological Association, right? There's military psychology, there's school psychology, educational psychology, marriage and family psychology. And sports psychology is one of them, but they all are so quarantined off that oftentimes breakthroughs in one area are not being shared in other areas. And I try to be consilient in my thinking, meaning Carol Gilligan said that theory blinds observation. The idea being when you have a worldview, it often quarantines your mind off to other points of view. So, for example, if you have a back injury and you go to a chiropractor, they're going to see a chiropractic solution, and a surgeon is going to see a surgical solution. And an ortho is going to it's just an orthopedic solution. So wherever you go, people find solutions based on their worldview. And I try to break free from that by really delving into all areas of philosophy, sociology, psychology, math. I mean, I really try to be a conciliant thinker. And so for me, it was, I was reading social cognitive theory and saying, man, this applies to sports, but this is golf. And I knew a bit about golf because my father played. I played in high school And at the University of Florida, friends on the golf team. But it was just such a perfect fit that I wrote a thought piece one night at 2 a.m. Because when you're an academic at Emory University in a PhD program, all you do is is read and think and talk and think and read and don't sleep. And at 2 a.m., when I was done with my regular work, I just wrote about a 20 page thought piece. In the thought piece was a profile of Jack Nicholas, it was about 2000. And what happened was at the time, there was no email. Someone photocopied my thought piece and they gave it to a guy named Davis Love III, so a PGA Tour golfer, who then took the lead at the Masters and referenced my thought piece. And then so people started calling me as if I was an expert on golf. So I would talk to golfers and then they'd go sort of win. And one guy won the Georgia section of the PGA. And then golfer after golfer after golfer, after reaching out to me, started winning such that Jack Nicholas in 2002 hadn't made a cut on the PGA Tour in two years. He invited me to travel with him up to the memorial tournament up in Ohio that he hosts. And I stayed with him at his house. It's surreal for me. I'm making $42,000 a year. I'd written a thought piece that had Jack Nicholas's psychological profile. And he asked me, (laughs) how did you know these things about me? And I said, Jack, I didn't. I looked at all your interviews. I reverse engineered your thinking, and this is the assumption that you had to be this way. And he loved it. And then he made the cut. He hadn't made a cut in two years. So the golf, this is when Tiger Woods was I'm the tour for four years, so the whole world was looking at golf, looking at Tiger Woods, and Jack Nicholas. they asked him, "Where did this come from? You haven't played this well in so long? And he referenced me, and that was the shift when Jack Nicholas, who had skewed sports psychology his whole career, says, and I quote, "He's the only sports psychologist I've ever met who's worth a damn. <laughs> so like that's high praise from Jack.
0: take us back. What was the analysis that had Jack sort of like, insight and breakthrough at this time. What'd you just tell him? Was it just 20 pages of just be the ball? What was the mindset? What was the mindset?
1: In that case, it started with the why. So one of the first questions I ask really anyone who thinks they want to work with me, is like, why do you do what you do? And it's not the Simon Cynic stuff. I don't find that particularly rigorous, but I'm glad somebody's talking about the why. But prior to Cynic, real psychology was delving into the why. And what happens is if I can know why you do what you do, or why Jack Nicholas or Justin Rose or Jordan Spieth, and really anyone, why they do what they do. If I can know the answer to that question, I can know with pretty good probability about five other things about that person. I can know what informs their confidence, why they lose their confidence, when they lose their confidence, how they react. I can know the manner in which they likely lie to themselves, to the degree they externalize success and failure or internal. So that, that why question. Is so powerful. And what happens, people tend to buck into one of two categories. Like if I say, why do you play golf? If you tell me that it's because I want to win trophies and I want to be famous and I want to get rich and I want to be the man and I want to beat other people, like all those traits bucking into what's called an ego orientation. So people do things because they want to embolden or enhance or improve their ego, their sense of self. The other category is people say, Well, because I love the challenge, I love learning, I love to solve hard problems, like there's an intrinsic motivation. You realize that whether people are partially intrinsically or extrinsically motivated, the degree to which they need other people's approval, the degree to which they love solving hard problems versus having things done easily for them are two radically different profiles of a person that tell me so much about them. And you can see the way that you can actually forecast the way the dominoes will fall in their career. And so Jack read that and he's like, man, that's how I used to play. But when you become famous, there's a psychological shift that happens happens to almost every golfer. I often say I felt like the undertaker of a small town, that if you were a really, really great golfer, you almost had to come visit me because the things that kept happening that would undo great golfers' games. And Jack read that and it just blew his mind and he went and started to play better. In fact, a month later, he went on ESPN. He was on a fishing show because he loves to fish for bonefish. And they weren't catching any fish. And he had referenced that piece again. He said, that's okay. I'm a mastery fisherman, not an ego fisherman. He started to view himself a certain way. And so that was the beginning. And I will say that that concept, whenever a golfer reads that, they see themselves in one of those two. And when I can shift a golfer down the right path, that's what's led to really a lot of the success on the PGA Tour.
0: Let's stay there for a minute. Because there's curious parts to me too, is you see this all the time. And I wonder how many people who may actually start out ego driven. They're young, they want to prove themselves, they want to make a bunch of money, they see all these things and maybe have a little success and then are actually able to make that transition maybe to mastery. Do they usually stay in one camp or is there some fluidity there?
1: Yeah, no. When you profile the greats, they're almost cat- well, they are categorically mastery oriented. But what happens is interesting is we talk about that psychological shift. So we can talk about really investing in golf. But let's talk about golf for a minute and then we'll shift to the world of finance. So every golfer begins playing golf and staying with golf because it's just awesome. It's an amazingly fulfilling game in every way. So you start out playing golf because you love it. You're out there till the sun sets and you don't want to go home, but you have to because you can't see the ball, but you can't wait till your mom or dad drives you to the golf course the next day. And you see it everywhere in the world. You see people chasing the game. You see really really wealthy people really really famous people really really accomplished people once they find their way into golf it's like they don't leave because the game is so hard but it it's so telling about you as a person it reveals us so people get addicted to the game of golf what happens is that obsession and that love of the game because of those things are in place you become really really good at it so what happens is the developmental path is you become good at golf so you maybe you get a, a college scholarship All of a sudden you get to college. And because of your love of craft, your love of challenge, your love of learning, well, now you get a special dorm room and you get cool shirts and you get your own sort of perks and you're on campus and you're a college athlete. So what happens in the mind is you start to realize is because of this thing that I love, because of this, I get this. When I play good golf, I get recognition, I get to play on the team. And then it goes all the way to the PGA tour and you start making money. But the psychological shift happens. When the thing that you get becomes more important than the game, whether it's wealth or validation or fame or trophy. So, what I always say is it's okay to be both mastery and ego, but there's got to be an order. You can't care. It'd be like Einstein saying, I'm going to get into physics because I want to win the Nobel Prize. It doesn't work that way. The game is too hard. What the research shows is for mastery oriented individuals, when you dive into something, Because you love it, Will McKenzie living out of his van in Montana because he loved to snowboard. Like for three years, lived out of a van. You see it in a lot of domains: triathlon, and you see it with runners. I saw it recently with kayakers, like people who are willing to sort of they were mountain biking. I was with a mountain biker two days ago. And so, what happens is, people who are pursuing something for the passion, their memory is better. The anxiety is lower, we call it deeper cognitive processing, like all the things that relate to success. But when we shift and we're doing things for the optics or the veneers of it, like it's not that I love golf, but I want to project myself a certain way. This happened to a golfer named Rory McElroy, for one sport, who's probably the most talented golfer outside of Tiger Woods of the last several generations. No one would deny that. And he came out as a 17, 18, 19, 20 year old golfer and took the golf world by storm, just won everything won the US Open, I think, by nine shots. And Jordan Spieth is another example to a lesser degree. So what happens is you come on, you love golf, you love to compete, but then he signs a $200 million Nike contract. And he's in commercials for Omega watches talking about being a superstar and, and, and And what happens is you could really see the shift. And I was early on this. And I think I offended Rory because somebody had mentioned it to me. I didn't need to do that. I was just on the golf channel, making an observation saying like, he's in trouble. And I was on a panel and the four other people on the planet, all professional golfers and analysts, like, oh, you don't know what you're talking about, blah, blah, blah. And I was in advance of Roy McIlroy's career taking a shift for the worse because I was listening to how he was describing how he was thinking about golf. I'm like, he just shifted from mastery to ego. And I know what this path looks like. And oh, by the way, he went down the tubes. And I can send you that clip later and you can see it. Two weeks later, everyone on the panel said, oh, now we see what Dr. Geo was talking. This is when Rory had a meltdown in the Masters, I think. Or did
0: they, they just say you jinxed him? They're like, this is the Dr. Geo jinx Rory.
1: <laughs> no, he hadn't listened to the interview. But anyway, so you start seeing what happens is ego-oriented people versus mastery. And this is the interesting thing, is what they do with failure. And this is both true in investing and in sports. So for a mastery-oriented individual, someone who's pursuing something because they love of craft, love of challenge, they're on their own path and they fail. The reaction to failure is typically curiosity. It's, okay, what's going on? What am I missing? How can I solve this problem? For ego-oriented individuals, when they fail, the reaction is embarrassing. I really want you to think about this. If my motivation is Kaizen, I want to get better at this thing that I love to do, and I don't get it right, I might be frustrated, but I want to solve that problem. If my motivation is to impress you, if my motivation is to impress the media, if my motivation is to prove to other people. And I fail, the natural reaction is embarrassment. So you can see now two different paths. Failure hits, because failure is built into the big leagues. How do I react to failure? This is curiosity. I'm going to keep getting better. This is embarrassment. Now what we know about embarrassment and humiliation is it's it's right up there with the most painful psychological reactions. Like there's grief, there's the grieving and the loss of a loved one. There's the grieving and the loss of a breakup. And there's embarrassment and humiliation. There are a few things more psychologically painful than embarrassment. So, if you invite embarrassment into your world, that if I fail, I'm going to feel humiliated. It's like a throw switch in the brain. It's like pulling a fire on it, it shuts a building down. The amygdala part of the brain, when you introduce humiliation or embarrassment to somebody, it shuts down their talent and they start playing scared. And what we know in every achievement domain, you start playing scared, you're done. So, you can see there's a really logical path, a causal chain from if you tell me why you do what you do, that I can actually see the way the, the dominoes will fall. I can anticipate how you're going to react to failure. And I also know that failure is imminent. And then when you react with humiliation, you start being desperate, you start over trading, you get out of positions too soon, you have no conviction, and on and on and on. It's a cluster of bad habits. And what most people try to do with the analytics, risk teams and hedge funds all over the world and say, here's your trading behavior. We have to change the behavior. What they're not doing is understand that behavior is an expression of the why initially. So it's all fascinating to me.
0: Yeah. There's a quote that I attribute to our buddy, Mark Yusko that says, and it may just be an old trading axiom, I don't know, but he says, every trade can make you richer or wiser, but never both. And it's often talking about losing and failure as an investor. And this applies to all walks of life, but as a badge of honor and scars that you can learn from. And we talk a lot on this show about having to be a good loser, particularly in the investing world, but applies so much in sports too. So it's easy to say, okay, fear, we can recognize it. And it's a huge problem in golf and sports and and investing too. But how do you conquer it? Is conquer the right word? How do you become aware of it and deal with it? Like, what's the coaching advice to that?
1: Well, that's a really good question. You know, fear and anxiety are probably two of the most heavily funded research areas within psychology. Fear, anxiety, things like PTSD, like the real problems. So, fear is a difficult one. In the absence of real trauma, there are absolutely strategies. So, for example, There's a concept in psychology known as self efficacy, and self efficacy is just operationalized confidence. So just think of self efficacy as confidence, right? So within that research arena, there are three. So this is true of you, everyone who you work with, everyone who's listening to this, and everyone who's walking down my street. That underneath the veneers of who you are, there are three belief systems that are always at play. It's your self concept, which is how you view yourself. So if I were to ask you to give me five or 10 words to, Self describe, that would essentially be your self concept. It's your identity. It's how you view yourself. Running in tandem with that is your self esteem. And self esteem is how you feel about yourself. So, self esteem and self concept, they're somewhat related. Like if I give great descriptors of myself and I like myself, but then the third one is self efficacy, which is your confidence. So, you've got three different self views. What we know is self esteem is problematic in the research literature because it's predictive of exactly nothing. It doesn't predict whether you're going to be good or bad at something. It's just a feeling. And it's interesting, and it matters to overall psychological health. But in the achievement domain world, it doesn't matter because it doesn't empirically relate to anything. Self-concept, how you view yourself, sort of matters. In the right situation, it's important to feel important. But the most important one is this idea of self-efficacy, which is confidence, right? And here's why. Your confidence tends to get informed by four types of experience. Number one is your past success and failure. So if you've been successful time and again and again and again and again, you're likely to be more confident that you'll be successful in the future. The problem with the math around that is the brain tends to overweight failure. In other words, losing money hurts more than making money feels good. So I want you to really think about this. If you are an investor and a trader, and you know when the markets are open 250 days a year and you've got a 20-year career so, what's that? 5,000 trading days. Well, 5,000 trading days. Markets are open. And you happen to be right, let's say 60% of the time. So 40% of the time, so 2000 trading days, you are wrong, 2000 iterations of anything. You have to assume I did the math wrong there, but it doesn't matter. What actually matters is that the brain overweights the pain that comes with failure. And it is amplified when you're an ego oriented person and embarrassment, like the pain of embarrassment that you have to tell your wife or your family that you're going to draw or that you got fired or your management team, or your risk officer, or the founder of your firm. And so what happens is confidence is informed by the wins, but we overweight the losses, which is why over time, even though investors develop more skills, they tend to become more risk-averse. The research shows that, that over time, we become more risk-averse. And this is in a world where you get paid for smart risk. So it becomes a bias. Essentially, if you don't have a toolbox for dealing with how you're going to handle failures. If you don't have a process around failure, you will eventually start trading from a place of irrational fear. It's just math, unless you have a particular type of brain that you can shed that or, or, or.
0: Like the Eli Manning, just chuck a few interceptions and come right back to the line of scrimmage. <laughs>
1: yeah. like Athletes at the highest level have all found a way to deal with fear. For example, Tiger Woods. Here's what Tiger Woods said in his book. He says, I refuse to give into fear, real or imagined, or to be afraid either consciously or unconsciously of anything or anyone. (laughs) Like, what? Let me think about the greatest athlete, arguably in the history of sports. If you want to do a comparison of Tom Brady, Tiger Woods, Michael Jordan, Wayne Gretzky, Michael Phelps, and you get them all in a room, I think this is true. And I know that I've been around a few of them. They'd all agree that what Tiger did is the hardest because golf's the hardest of the things. It puts such a premium on your mental game and your physical game and, the end. So I think most people, it's, it's debatable, but like what Tiger did, that body of work, I'd put it up probably better than any of those guys. The question to someone like me becomes, how the hell do you do that in such a hard game? How are you against 139 other of the best players in the world for about five years? It's pick em. One guy versus 139 other guys. And you're going to go with this guy. He won eight tournaments in a row. Like what? So what's the belief system that informs that body of work? Well, that belief system is rooted in what I just said. It's, I refuse to give into fear, real or imagined, or to be afraid either consciously or unconsciously of anything or anyone. If you could take that belief system, and insert it into any investor, all of a sudden, you're removing one of the primary biases, all the language these says around cognitive biases, one of the biggest biases has to do with two things, right? It's fear and sort of the desire that's in that eternal dance with fear. What Tiger is saying in that statement is, I'll acknowledge my fear. He's not saying, I refuse to feel it. What he's saying is, I refuse to give into it and it can be real or imagined, it doesn't matter. I'm not giving into it. And it can be of anything or anyone. All of a sudden, you see the equation is, I'm not going to be afraid of people judging me. I'm not going to be afraid of failing. I'm not going to be of, like I'm just going to have a plate for dealing with fear writ large. And you take that and you it to Jack Nicklaus, Ben Hogan, Sam Sneed, Patrick Cantley, who's one of the greatest, best young golfers in the world in the States, and all of the best investors I've ever seen or worked with. They all have a playbook to deal with fear and to find a way that those failures don't create the bias of I'm trading from a place of fear. And when they feel that they are, they have a playbook for compensating so they don't, they're not their own worst enemy. So that's step number one. And there's about 20 other things I can talk about. I feel like I'm talking too much, but the idea of managing the emotion of fear, how you're going to deal with the type of failure and embarrassment and frustration. That leads to that fear is of paramount importance if you want to be great at anything, particularly a world like investing or sports.
0: I mean, if we could just briefly, I feel like we could do a dozen episodes on some of these topics, but this concept of building that toolbox, I imagine some of the hack golfers like myself on here listening to this, and I was gonna say, you know, the last five times I played this course, I shanked it into the lake every time. So Tiger's not shanking in the lake, but maybe hits it in the rough or something. And You say, I have this toolbox to deal with it. Like, what does that actually mean? Because I feel like a lot of people listening to this would be like, okay, well, great. It's easy to say, (laughs) not to be scared on the tee box, but son of a bitch, I've hit it in the lake every time. So now how do I, I can forget it, but then I'm just going to hit it in the lake again.
1: Right. No, that's an awesome question. That defines the late early part of my career. Psychology, we talk about, there's two different types of knowledge. There's conceptual knowledge, which is to know something, content knowledge. And then what's called procedural knowledge, which is to know how to do something. How do you bridge that divide from theory to practice? How do you? So, in the early part of my career, I, as a young sports psychologist, which I guess I was at the time, I'd tell golfers, hey, you got to be confident. <laughs> and oftentimes they'd be like, okay, how do I do that? Because <laughs> I don't feel confident right now. And i say, well, the theory says you should do this and this and this. And so, transitioning from the conceptual how to the procedural do, I think is probably. For me, if I were to sort of audit and critique my own career to date, I would say that's the biggest leap I made is teaching people the do, how to do confident, how to be confident, not just think on it. I'll tell you one of the things that's at the center of the work that I do with my clients writ large, and that has to do with the psychology of attachments. So attachments are huge. Here's what I mean. There are two benchmark statements. And this is just my opinion, by the way. Anyone listening, can, you can roll your eyes. You can say that guy's a, and I accept all of it. I you critique me all. This is just my worldview and the research I've done. And if you have better answers out there, I'd love to hear from you. But this is where I've arrived as a scholar. So there are two benchmark statements in golf and in investing that I use. What I taught golfers is there's one essential question you have to ask yourself. And that question is, what's my target? And when I said this to my former advisor, I said, yeah, so I'm doing this work with golfers. It's going really, really well. And he goes, oh, what's the predicator? I said, well, I teach him. And he goes, you're telling me the best golfers in the world don't understand that they should be picking a target on every shot? I said, remarkably, no. He goes, how could that be? And I said, well, it's not that they don't know it. It's just, there's so many distractions because all of a sudden they think, well, how's my, the guy in my group is playing better and there's the leaderboard. And oh my God, look who's watching. And they're like, there's so much information happening that they forget the fundamental fact that you should pick a target on every shot and that you should make a fearless swing at that target. And that's a very clarifying question. And so, golfers all around the world are out there. And if I ask them, like, hey, are you a competitive person? They're like, yeah, I'm competitive. I'm like, well, who are you competing against? And then they get the deer in the headlights. Like, well, are you competing against other golfers? Is it against the past? Is it against other players? The leader, like, if you call yourself competitive, who are you competing against? If you can't answer that question, then you're chasing a phantom here. And so, what I always tell golfers is, you should compete, be competing against the golf course architect or against the golf course itself. And every shot have a target. Like that is the litmus test. That's the clarifying statement. And everything else dissolves. For investors, depending on the particular type of investments, different for private equity maybe and startups and such. But I'll put it out there anyway, and people can vet the idea. What I say is, you should deploy capital. Proportional to the opportunity in the moment. And I think that's a really obvious statement. You should deploy capital. Proportional, meaning the amount of capital you deploy, is proportional to the opportunity itself in the moment. And people can roll their eyes and say, You got a PhD for that? Okay. But try investing professionally for a living and realize how difficult it is to do what I just said because investors deploy capital for all sorts of reasons. They deploy capital into, let's use Restoration Hardware, because it's on my mind. I'm going to put more money into Restoration Hardware because I lost money on Restoration Hardware, and I know it's a good company. I, and In my mind, I've got to make money the same way I lost it. Well, that's not deploying capital proportional to the opportunity. You're deploying capital because you lost in Restoration Hardware. Or maybe you made a lot of money in Restoration Hardware, and you need to win so bad, you're going to go back to your wheelhouse because we regressed to things that made us feel good at some point. That's not rational. That's not deploying capital proportional to the opportunity. Let's say I'm a golfer who, I'm sorry, I'm an investor who made, generated $20 million in PL last year. And my payout's gonna be, I don't know, let's call it $5 million, $5 million check each of the last three years. And so I've saved $10 million and I'm on a real career trajectory and I've got $15 million saved and I'm at a good point in my career. I think it's gonna be like this forever. So I buy a piece of land in the Hamptons and I build a $9 million house. And as they're doing construction on a $9 million house, the expenses have ballooned because it always, they always ballooned to $14 million. And I'm in a draw. And oh, by the way, my process, which has worked each of the last three years, and I've generated $15 or $20 million of personal wealth. And now I've got a $15 million expense on top of the lifestyle that I've built around my wealth, because I fly private a little bit here and there and I'm flying first class, and I'm in a draw. And so my prospect for making money this year is down. And all of a sudden, I need to make money because I've got these fixed expenses in my life. I need to so now you're imposing your needs on the market. you are not deploying capital proportional to the opportunity that presents itself. You're deploying capital because you need to make money to pay off an expense. So I can go example after example after example after example of how some of the smartest investors in the world do not invest rationally. And by the way this is true of quants and systematic traders as well people are like well, that's why we have systematic training. That's why we're quants; we trust the math, really. <laughs> okay, so here's the bias: there, the quants. And by the way, I did a lot of math in grad school at Emory University—five doctoral-level statistics courses. I love math; it's the language of science. But people create algorithms and systematic processes as much to guard against their own biases as the fact that it's good fiduciary habits. And what happens is, even though the algorithm is static or malleable, the person deploying it, that's a human being pulling the trigger there. So, to think that quants, and I've worked with many of them, many, many of them, don't have biases is the height of all folly. That's like, good luck with that. So, again, what I'm going to say is go back to the litmus test. We should deploy capital proportional to the opportunity in the moment. And if you're doing that and you have a process around that, and there's a wash, rinse, repeat, like the back of a shampoo bottle, right? If you want to know how to be a great investor, look at the back of a shampoo bottle. Lather, wash, rinse, repeat. Have a process. Stick to that process. Independent of the variability of the market, run that process. And in aggregate, over time, you should be able to make a lot of money if you're smart and talented and rigorous and so forth.
0: Well, it just brought up a memory. We talk to investors a lot in this particular topic where they talk about their positions. We often ask them we say, does your portfolio look like kind of an ideal portfolio that you would if you had a blank piece of paper you would implement today. And often, if not majority of the time, the answer is no. And then the analogy I gave was go look around your garage. If you had an empty garage, would you go buy all the things that you currently have in the garage? And there's never been one person ever that's like, yeah, I would buy exactly that exercise bike from 20 years ago and on and on and on. And so there was a quote recently by Adam Grant where he's like, I don't want my ideas to become my identity. And I think it works both ways where People just these attachments they have, and it works particularly with the investing world once you have a position or have an experience with a market, it triggers a whole cascade waterfall of problems or emotions that then get attached to that but while we're kind of in this genre, I would love to hear you went from primarily golf and sports focused to the investing world, and I think the older. Crowd listening to this podcast will know Steve Cohen as SAC. The slightly younger crowd will know him as 0.72, and the youngest crowd will know him as the owner of the Mets. So he's got all three of those hats, but tell us a little bit about any differences you kind of go from the greatest athletes in the world to some of the titans of the investing world. So
1: listen to this. You're asking about my transition from golf to 0.72. So I'd worked with a few investors prior to 0.72. So I knew a little bit about the language. But when Steve had invited me to sort of come in and be on staff at 0.72 and be sort of the in-house performance coach, there's a lot about your world I don't know. I know the psychology of it and so forth. So what happened was, is we both agreed that it would be a mistake for me to just jump in and be an employee. And I didn't want to put myself in a bad position. I was a professor at Rollins College, had a great job and a great life. So I started working with four of his PMs initially. And so let's just work with Ford. Let me let me sort of figure some things out. So I was in Colorado. Actually, I actually on sabbatical. Interesting that I was living in Colorado and I flew to Point Seventy
0: Two twice a month. Hanging out in your cabin, that's very uh, thorough of you. It was very
1: thorough of me. It was arguably the best, uh, most idyllic time in my life. Because my cabin has no internet and has no cell phone service. It was built in the 1940s. I would have to come down the mountain to check out anything. It was awesome. So what happens on the, both in the PG tour and in the hedge fund world is quote-unquote, the man in the arena, the person in the arena, you have to earn that respect. PGA Tour golfers are not going to give you their time or attention for any other reason than they believe you're going to make them better. Portfolio managers, at point seven two, no one was forced to work with me. It was never, you have to work with you. It was always, if you want to. Started with, on the PGA Tour, I started with one golfer, Heath Slocum, Chad Campbell, and it grew to a stable of some of the best golfers in the world. Worked with over 100 PGA Tour golfers. At some point, I had worked with all three medal winners in the 2016 Olympics. Henrik Stenson, Matt Kuchar, Justin Rose. Justin and Matt more than Henrik. So, but it was all word of mouth. It was, hey, I heard you can help me. Golfers will always call me. Hey, I've heard you can help me. And my answer is, I don't know, but I'm happy to try. The PM community, I started with four. And I was on sabbatical with the intention of returning to my professorship. And what ended up happening was at the end of my sabbatical, it had grown. My stable of PMs had grown to, I think, 15 or 16 at 0.72. And 0.72 said, hey, we'd love you to stay and come on full-time. And I thought, this is working out really well. And I love the work. And that's the thing that I listen to. Talk about mastery orientation. I love working with portfolio managers and investors. And the reason is because the horsepower, the IQ points. Wall Street attracts really, really, really smart people. And at that time in my life, I'd been doing a lot of teaching, but I didn't feel like I was learning a whole lot. So I thought, yeah, I'll give it a shot. And my stable had grown to 15 or 16 PMs so within 0.72. And by the time five years had gone by, I had 90% of the investing community at
0: 0.72. What's wrong with the holdouts, the final 10%? I think for the same reason. So I'll give an example.
1: Jordan, a uh, golfer named Jordan Spieth and I had dinner in 2015, 2015. And he's doing really well in the PGA tour. Not great, but good. And he said, your book's really helped me. And I was thinking maybe we should work together. And after a three-hour dinner, I said to him, I said, Jordan, you don't need me. <laughs> like you're thinking perfectly. Don't get bullied by the fact that you don't win enough, like, you're fine. And he went out and won that week by 10 shots and then had one of the best years in the history of the PGA in 2015.
0: Cheap dinner, man. Yeah.
1: Right. But this idea that if you have a process that's working, not everyone needs a psychologist. Not everyone needs coaching. And I've had enough success that I don't need the work. I can say to people, I don't really think you need a whole lot of help. Uh, so I said, listening to you talk, it's perfect. And even though I probably had met with every PM at point 72 at some point, like some guys got to figure it out and they know themselves. Like Ari Key used to write about the importance of knowing yourself. If you know yourself, you know the markets, you know your habits and your biases, like you don't always need me and I'm okay with that. And if you need me, maybe you need me once or twice a year. You don't need me once a week. And there's a whole myriad of reasons. So, but Getting to work with people with PhDs in theoretical math from Harvard University and getting a chance to work with captain of the former captain of the Harvard hockey team and just these intellectual giants. And I celebrate smart. the fact that I can go toe-to-toe with these people is to me makes me so proud of myself because these are real pedigree. Ivy League, MIT, Stanford, competitive people who want to talk to me. I'll take that all day long. So I found and continue to find Wall Street intellectually invigorating place. And I love the game. I love the challenge.
0: One of the areas, seemingly in an investing world that might be a little bit different is the markets in general, there's an element of randomness. I think almost, I don't know if you've ever had any professional gambler clients, but there's a similar challenge, which is you can have the right process and the outcome may not work out. Whereas I feel like a lot in sports, you can go the harder you work often has very direct outcome results. The more you practice, the better you get. And sometimes just like you get stuck in an environment in the investing world that can last a really long time, depending on how you approach the markets. Obviously, the hyperactive trading or the people doing on a very short time frame, that's different than the people doing it on months and years. As you spent time and kind of did this engagement. Was there an element where you said, okay, like here's a very specific difference from the golf sports world that I need to address that has like a measurable impact, or was it actually pretty darn similar across the board?
1: The answer is yes, really different and really similar. And it's funny you say that because people have asked me a lot, you know, what are the similarities and differences between golf and investing? And I've really parsed that out lately, and I'm going to actually write a thought piece on it pretty soon. One of the parallels between, one of probably the biggest parallels between golf and investing is the variability of the outcome. So in golf, it's score, in investing, it's p So let's just start there. When you think of the difference between chess and poker, chess and backgammon, the difference between those two games is randomness and variability. So backgammon is the roll of the dice. That's a variable. And in poker, it's cards that you're dealt. That's a variable. Whereas chess, it's just direct, mano-a-mano, 100% control over the board. So, when we talk about games that have variability in outcome, when that outcome can meaningfully impact your life, your potential to earn money, which by extension, your potential to feed your family, feed yourself, take care of yourself, get insurance, and so forth. Whenever your well being in life is governed by things over which you have little or no control, that brings anxiety into play. Government policies that impact your life, people go crazy over various things that exercise influence monetary policy just all the things that influence your life and that you don't have control over. So what happens is with this variability is that people tend to attach to results. So let's talk about that as an a priori concept like just assume that if you're a human being unless you're in the half of a percent of people like you'll attach to various things. So for example, we attach to the past. Someone criticized me or made fun of me when I was in 5th grade and I never let it go and like you're attached to the past. To the future. People attach to the future. It's, oh man, what if I never make another dollar? What if I never find love? What if we create our own anxiety because we project ourselves into an uncertain future? That's an attachment. What we know is that people also attach to short term results. And so you're making money, you feel good. You're losing money, you feel bad. As a golfer, you're making birdies, you feel confident. You're bogeys, you lose your confidence. And so our mindset, if we don't have a proper way of viewing it, tends to look like our P&L. What's that old saying? You're making money, it feels like you'll never lose money again. When you're losing money, it feels like you'll never make money again. And your psychological aperture changes if you don't have a process or someone like me to hold you on that line or someone in your firm or whoever you work with. And so this idea of the psychology of attachments that we tend to attach to short-term results, and then we react to them. And so what happens is this, and I'll use a metaphor. If this is my results and this is me, and I'm attached to my results. As the results go, I go with them. And so, what happens? I have no freedom. So, what you realize is freedom and attachment cannot coexist. This is freedom. This is attachment. This is PL. This is my mental well being. If I'm attached to PL, I have no psychological freedom, which means I have no objectivity. I have a bias. If I am attached to short term results, there's absolutely no way that I am making clear, objective decisions about the opportunity in the market. So it begs the question, and it brings into play that what I call is the hell, and this is what I do with all my clients. Once a week, we detach. We actively let go of things that are in our mind. So for example, ask ourselves a simple question every Friday, to what am I attached that is influencing my mindset that I don't want to be there, that I didn't put there by volition or will, that I haven't chosen my, well, I can ask myself the question right now, what am I attached to? Well, I'm attached to the quote that the plumber gave me to replumb my house. I'm attached to that. I'm attached to in fifth grade. The teacher told me to mouth the words to a song in the school play because I have a bad singing voice. That really hurt my feelings. I'm attached to the fact that my portfolio was up 30% because the market was, and now I'm only up 10%. So I gave back 20%. And now there's a built in bias to recoup that loss because I had already spent that money and I was budgeting or retiring or this stuff. So all these attachments that we have, and people don't take the time to let go, to detach from things that are irrational. The fact that somebody cut me off or jumped, took a parking space. I mean, people are walking around. It's like Pinocchio, right? With all these strings. And everyone's walking around as a bundle of attachments, but they have no psychological freedom. And by the way, this isn't me. This is Henry David Thoreau. Man is born free, but everywhere he is in chains. And scale that to humanity. So unless you do some real work around letting go of the things that are hemming you in as a human being, there's absolutely no chance that you're functioning at your optimal level. Kelly Slater greatest surfer in the history of surfing, went through a slump in his career. He had a film crew track his, quote unquote, comeback year. When he won, finally, I think after several years of being irrelevant, he won the world title. And when he released the documentary, guess what he called it? He called it letting go. Because in order for him to regain or to reinvent himself, he had to let go of the past. He had to let go of his failures. He had to let go of who he used to be. He had to let go of all of it. And reinvent himself with psychological freedom so he can go and be fearless. And so, this idea of letting go that people don't let go of the past, they don't let go of bad trades, they don't let go of pain, they don't let go of slights, they don't let go of the things that hem them in. We don't let go of failure. So, failure defines our lives. And so, in the absence of having a process around letting go of the things that the movie Fight Club, one of the great movies of my generation, is this awesome scene in which Tyler Durden says to, His alter ego, he says, let that which does not matter truly slide. What a line. And this is what people mostly don't do. We attach to things that don't matter. We live our lives with this internal dialogue, talking about shit that does not matter. We don't let it go. And the beauty of the inside of that line is let that which does not matter truly slide. Like if you can truly let go of things that don't matter. The type of creative freedom that comes into your mind—it's like being reinvented as a human being. Steve Jobs talked about this, by the way, when he was kicked off out of his own company and released the board and fired him. And this is before he had founded Pixar. He was walking around aimlessly, but what he said is the lack of expect—no one had any expectations. I was free, and what happened? What filled the void of that freedom was a period of creative expression that led to Pixar. And so sometimes these detachments are forced, and sometimes we have to do the work to let go of things.
0: So I want to hear about how to do the work and break these chains, because if I go upstairs, I talk to my wife, and I might say, babe, just let it go. The reaction I'm going to get is not, not going to be a positive one, or my four-year-old. But I think a lot of people listening to this probably identify some things they would love to Be free of or let go. They just don't know how. And this is probably the topic of many more hours, but do you have any just general suggestions for those people that want to actually try to put this into practice?
1: Sure. So, this is where we borrow from religious tradition, right? So, if you look at whether it's Christianity or Buddhism or the Islam faith, one of the things that all religious traditions have in common is some form of prayer. So, I'll use Christianity as an example church every Sunday, grace before dinner, say your prayers. Well, why can't I just go to church on the first day of the year? Tell God, I'm sorry for my sins and try to be graceful, and then I'm done for the year. And so, what all religious traditions suggest is that in the absence of actively practicing your beliefs, you will default into a worse version of yourself. Like, if you don't go and in the Christian tradition, it's you'll end up with original sin being driven by the seven deadly sins like sloth, greed, lust, all these things that get us in trouble. But 2,000 years to get it right, and they're still maintaining that you have to actively practice your beliefs. Hinduism, it's true of Buddhism, it's true in the Muslim faith, it's true in the Jewish tradition and faith, like you have to have habits. Same is true of letting go of attachments. If you don't actively practice letting go of things, you will default to a state of attachment and you will not be free. So you can go to your wife, you but anyone say, hey, you need to let it go. Well, you're right, it's not going to go over well, for many reasons, by the way, and a myriad of reasons, I'm sure, because in as much as I talk about things with all my clients, marriage is at the center of it.
0: And also she's an Emory PhD. And those, man, once those wheels start spinning, she's going to be thinking about it all night. Next thing you know, it's a 20-page thought piece and I'm the center of it. Here we go.
1: <laughs> yeah. And she's like, what do you mean by that? Like, yeah, yeah that's a bad run. So how to let go of attachments, just get in the habit of actively practicing letting go of attachments. You'll be bad at it at first. Everyone is. But the more you do it, the more you sit and you ask yourself, to what am I attached? And close your eyes. You just sit with your thoughts. You identify the attachments and you just tell yourself, let it go. And you just keep repeating the phrase, just let it go. Let it go. You'll have a moment where you're like, oh my God, I, I just let it go. Like I'm free. I'm free of that. And the active practice of letting go of attachments leads to the type of psychological freedom required to be good anything you do. I'll say it again. The active practice of letting go of the things to which you are attached is required for you to be really, really good at anything. And I defy anyone to argue that point with me. The only argument I've ever heard that could even come close to disagreeing with that is, well, you should hold on to your failures and channel them in motivation. Let's like, so look Tiger Woods, Michael Jordan. Like In his Hall of Fame speech, Michael Jordan called out his high school coach. Remember you cut me, man? He screwed up. So I understand holding on to slights and channeling them to try to have fuel and motivation for the journey as the Chinese proverb says. The problem is when you attach to those slights too powerfully and they define you, you handle failure in a way that leads to failure more often than success. Independent of that argument, there is no argument. You've got nothing to say in my opinion. So that's really partially central to a lot of the work that I do with my clients it's like we're actively letting go of the attachments that compromise our psychological freedom, because we need to see the world as it is, not through our biases and our own histories and so forth.
0: I was laughing as you were talking about letting it go, because for anyone with young kids, and you said you had three, and think about turning that into a frozen soundtrack. Well, good look, man. Uh, This has been a blast. I have like six more pages of things to talk to you about. What you were talking about reminds me so much of this discussion of process and performance, which so many in our world, even at the top echelons of institutions managing in the hundreds of billions, if not trillions, they talk a lot about process and performance and then don't behave that way. Often they do on the buy side, but maybe not the sell side. I've yet to have an investor call us up and say, you know what, Meb, your performance is too high. So we're going to sell what you're up to. It's always on the flip side.
1: I want to comment on that because I have a statistic I pulled up for you that this really matters to anyone who wants to be good at something. From 2002 to 2005, Tiger Woods had 1,540 putts from three feet and in. He missed three of them. So I want you to really think about this. 1,540 times over the course of three years, Tiger had a putt inside of three feet and in. Now this is in wind, in rain. Imperfect greens, left to right, right to left, uphill, downhill. 1,500 times, he only missed three of them. Can you imagine the type of discipline, rigor, commitment to process required? Like That is the greatest single statistic I've ever read in sports. People have no idea how hard it is. That's why there's nothing that Tiger did that was like, that is the tell of how good he is. You want to hear how good Steve Cohen is? Here's how good Steve Cohen is. I asked his wife this, I said, I have a quick question. How many days off has your, does your husband take? And I haven't known, this is what I hadn't known Steve for that long. She said four days off in the time that she'd known him. So if you go 40 years, 250 trading days, called 10,000 days, we will just average. 10,000 days, Steve Cohn took off four. You know why? He was in the hospital. <laughs> and as soon as he woke up from surgery, he had them set up monitors as the story goes, in other words, Tiger Woods shows up every day for his craft. Steve Cohen shows up every day for his craft. The everydayness, showing up and being present in the moment for what you're doing really matters. And so when you tell me about this buy side, sell side, and having a process and a commitment to a process, you want to see who lives at the tail end of the curve? It's people who keep showing up. It's Tiger Woods, 1,540 putts from three feet. Missed three of them. That is an insanely hard thing to do. 10,000 trading days for a guy who doesn't need the money. Missed four of them who's in the hospital. That's an unbelievable. I admire that kind of commitment so much. And I can give you example, example, and guess who these people are? They all occupy the tail end of the curve. It ain't talent. It's not IQ points. It's, it is those things, but it's also the everydayness of showing up for the job.
0: I'm just picturing two visuals as you're talking about this. One is the Tigerwood putts. I just picture like the three that he missed. It's either like a ladybug or an earthworm, just like moseying around. And I also picture Stevie Cohen being in the hospital bed and like unplugging the EKG machine and then like plugging in the Bloomberg. So he has it like where it was there. And I'm going to reference you on this one because this is from One Earpieces, But you talk about, I think, a perfect quote to kind of wind this down is the Thomas Edison The reason a lot of people don't recognize opportunity is because it usually goes around wearing overalls and looks like hard work, which I pull from you. Dr. Gio, where do people go? They want to uh, call you up They say, you know, I'm the world's top poker player. I need some help. I'm in a rut. Where do they go to read some of your missives? Any good places?
1: Yeah, I just put up a website. I don't know if it works, but it's like geovalianti.com. Or you can find me on LinkedIn or email geovalianti at Gmail. I don't know. There's all sorts of ways to find me. And I've got a couple of really good people around me that field all that stuff and parse it out. And we get back to everybody. We don't ever leave anyone abandoned. We know the world's a hard place and the work people do is really, really hard. So if you want to get to me, you'll get to me and we'll have things
0: in place to help everybody. Awesome, man. Dr. Gio, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks, Meb. Have a wonderful day there in Colorado, buddy. Podcast listeners will post show notes to today's conversation at mebfaber.com forward slash podcast. If you love the show, if you hate it, shoot us feedback at the mebfabershow.com. We love to read the reviews. Please review us on iTunes and subscribe the show anywhere good podcasts are found. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing.